This week's Major Spoilers podcast goes out to Thomas Perkins, well known for his wonderful muffins and vanilla cream pies. I think he also draws stuff. But anyway, this one goes out to you. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fame. Wow, deja vu. In this issue, aliens, vampires, and ducks, oh my, Dr. Doofenshmirtz continues to reap the benefits of his pantinator. And why is it that the trailers are always better than what they're trailering? And is trailering even a word? And who am I talking to? And how do I make my voice do this? Plus the health benefits of using a giant tick as body armor. And this podcast is called the Major Spoilers Podcast. It's about spoilers, major ones. But Major Spoilers Podcast ain't the name of the website. That's just the name of the podcast. And that's why we call the podcast the Major Spoilers Podcast. We ain't proud or tired, but we're on the air. Welcome, everyone, to this week's issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast. So glad that Yay! you are with us. Hello. There's Matthew right there. Matthew, so glad that you were here. And there's Rodrigo over there. What's up? Calling in from our satellite of love. <laughs> from our secret base thousands of miles beneath the Earth's crust. Actually, there is a, a big fallout shelter near by where you're at, Rodrigo. Did you know that? It's called Bunker Hill. <laughs> That's maybe why it's called Bunker Hill. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's, there's, there's that's actually, actually where it's at. That's actually where this there's an actual fallout shelter just right off the highway. I think it's across the street from the Bear House Cafe. Yeah, there, there's actually it's surprising that around here, you know, just in the older buildings, how many of them are still labeled as fallout shelters? Oh, yeah. Do you have uh, uh, fallout supplies down in the basement of the Smoky Hills? Uh, we have like tornado stuff, oh, okay. but we're not expecting to get, uh, you know, that the Kaiser is going to come by a <laughs> hundred year old so. crackers and like frozen peaches. Hey, those stuff, Twinkies though. will last forever. All right, everybody, let's get into this uh, show that we have here this week. We've got a bunch of reviews. We'll be talking about creature tech later in the episode. But first, here is the news. We've got, what is it, one, two, three, four items this week. A couple of movie items and a television item. First off, we've got Akira Actor shortlist has been uncovered. And I don't see any Asians on that list. Tetsuo! Racist! In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. The hobbit filming kicked off this past week. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has been cast as Alberto Falcone in the upcoming Dark Knight Rises movie. Or has he... And finally, Wonder Woman's costume for the new NBC pilot has been revealed. Let's spin that wheel of destiny. See where we land. Around and around it goes. There it stops on Wonder Woman's costume. Has number four, been number revealed. four, number four, number four, number four. Entertainment Weekly did a bang-up job this uh, past Friday by releasing a picture of, what's her name, Adriana Palaki? Palicki. Palicki. Palicki! <laughs> nice lady with the thing and the flavor and then the face and the day. You know, a hickey from Palicki is. Anyway. With the clicky uh, clicky. The moment that they released this image, it spawned a flurry of controversy. Now, you know. A, a virtual plethora of dirt. Plethora on the of. Split the internet in half, as Rodrigo is off to say. Then crazy glued it back together and <laughs> split it in half again just to prove that it could. Wait, I thought that and was you going to say the, that, Rodrigo. <laughs> No. That was Brian Michael Bendis, although you can kind of tell them apart. 
So anyway, uh, the uh, costume no has been revealed. Exactly. And we've got uh, the actress wearing a red bustier, uh, blue, what look like leather pants, tight leather pants, and blue leather boots. Rodrigo, what do you think of this costume? Um, it's fine. I, I don't really have a problem with it. I, I like it. It's, you know, people are people are giving it a lot of grief, but it seems functional, and it seems, one like, it's close enough to Wonder Woman's usual costumes because you know obviously what people don't recognize is people are like this is not wonder woman's costume but right. wonder woman actually has a lot of different costumes that just kind of look the same mm-hmm. yeah. um and this one could well be one of wonder woman's costumes i don't i don't really have an issue well, with it you know I, I think it's probably surprising for people because most people are going to remember linda carter wearing a bathing suit running around fighting crime as wonder woman six six months ago or so dc comics totally revamped wonder woman for the uh, straczynski wonder woman uh, reboot or whatever the heck that was i think it was for a some straczynski. values of vamp anyway uh and so she was wearing pants uh black pants uh halter top and a jacket this is pretty close to it except for the uh for the blue uh pants matthew what do you think uh i don't hate this but then i'm i'm one of the big believers in I for me the proof is going to be whether the show is good and how it looks in action. So mm-hmm. I think that th- there are people who make good points about it, but I love the three dimensionality. I love the eagle motif. I love the fact that it's clearly it's got star spangles on the pants. It's got mm-hmm. the red bustier. It's got you know the tiara. It's got what you expect of a Wonder Woman costume. It's got her bracers to deflect bullets. It is clearly while a new take still Wonder Woman. Yeah, even the bracers have the WW on them. Yep. Rodrigo, what do you do not like? What don't you like about this costume? Um, I think that it could be darker, but I, I think and somebody brought this up on the uh uh on the comments that uh it's probably as bright as it looks because most of the scenes are probably going to be taking place at night. Yeah. On, in like poorly lit factory districts because mm-hmm. that's where crime happens. Of course, that's one factory that they use in every movie. And the thing about this picture that's released, and they're not right using it for the cape right now. So, right. Yeah. If you look at this, you can see shadows on this white background and and around her head, and you don't see an even white. And if this was something that they were taking a picture of to punch out the background for um, a cover of Entertainment Weekly or whatever. They've got a lot of processing to do to this image. They have to adjust some contrast uh, to punch out those whites. They have to do some touching up here and there. One of the problems with fashion photography, is, as we kind of all know from our video days, is that if you're trying to remove blemishes and you're trying to create as as um, few a shadows as possible, you have to use a big, soft, white light, and you're going to position it near the camera to cast very little shadows. And that big white light surface on something that is highly reflective or even that has any kind of specularity as leather will have you're going to have these huge white hot spots on both the bustier and the pants and i think that's what people are complaining about the most and then when you look at her face uh there's no definition on her face there's no definition muscle tone on her arms because Mm -hmm. the soft light is removing that when you put her in a uh in a situation in television and light it like television you're going to see something totally different uh, I would point to the Major Spoilers website where we've got a picture of um, or a series of pictures of Playboy Playmate of the Year, Sarah Jean Underwood in a hero that <laughs> heroine that she's doing for uh, G4 TV's Attack of the Show. What's her name? Busterella or something? Bust a move? Busty Justice would be a great Busty name. Busty Justice Bustus. I but think they call her 
Bustus, which makes it sound like somebody, you know, with a speech impediment. <laughs> if you look yeah, at yeah, the, it's a superhero named Bustus. If you look at the stills pictures that, that we have up on the site that were taken with a real photographer with a flash, you see the exact same thing happening on her costume. You get these hot spots and these reflections that just really don't look good in the photograph. But if you've seen the bit on television... You know that they've lit it differently. The costume is much darker. It doesn't have the big shine and gloss like you see in these pictures, and it actually works really, really well. And I'm going to bet that that blue is going to be toned down quite a bit, and the red is going to look a lot darker when you see it on television. I agree. Many of the faithful spoilerites seem to agree as well. 365 votes. If that was a year, there'd be 565,600 minutes or something. Yeah, what we're talking about is the major spoilers poll. Poll of the, the week! week! I forgot to go to the poll of the week, but it's time! <laughs> it's okay, we're moving on! That's okay. Moving on, moving on. Poll of the week this week <laughs> is what do people think of the NBC uh, I costume? I, I resign. The, uh, <laughs> the categories were love it, can't wait to see it in action, hate it, don't want to see it, and I'll wait and see. Can't we wait to see what they do with it? So, Matthew, you said 360-some people. 365 votes, 53%. I'll wait and see. 53, by the way, my lucky number. So right. that's nice. Yeah. I, of think, those I who, think that's not actually true. I think that's just what Matthew tells old ladies that he meets at the Sizzler. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, darling. Did you know that? Howdy. You know, well, I'm 53 today. Age to is just a number, baby. electric pills. Yeah, you want to try and break a hip? Hey, I'm a lawyer. Let's see about getting you off. Um, 29% of the remaining people hate it. 18 love it. So we're kind of almost evenly split, about three to two on the people who have a strong opinion. The majority of the spoilerites voting are voting that they'll wait to see something more than that one single image before they, you know, rabidly start attacking everyone and, you know, ripping them. And that surprises you, Matthew? Did you think that they were going to be either or love it? It kind of does, because a lot of the comments are very vitriolic. There's a lot of, oh, my God, you must be kidding. This is terrible. We hate everything. That girl's fat, blah, blah, blah. I'll say this. She is a very attractive woman. I've never seen her brunette before. She's good brunette. She's got very strong eyes. She's got moles, which I never expected to see in Wonder Woman, but I kind of mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. She's an attractive woman in an attractive costume. And again, from a design perspective... The field of blue balanced against the red, and the skin really works. And I think that seeing her in action on film is going to be a completely different experience. I think it could work. This could be the next Battlestar Galactica for me. Uh, well, let's just hope it's not the next Bionic Woman. Rodrigo, um, <laughs> somebody here says that I this looks like... I hope it's not like... the first Bionic Woman. <laughs> <laughs> somebody says that this looks like a cheap Halloween costume or a hooker's costume. Do you buy into that? Not really. I mean, I think, I think that... Uh cosplayers have done a lot to make incredibly like incredible costumes a a mundane thing especially on on sites like ours you know where you're like oh look here's some uh pictures from like c2e2 that like we had recently or you know comic-con or something like that and there's people with amazing costumes that they spent hundreds of dollars working on mm-hmm. um and we're like oh well they're just cosplayers you know these these guys are amateurs whatever right, right? right. so then when this looks like a cosplay thing um yeah. people people come down on it but the fact of the matter is there are cosplayers out there who spent less or, or spent more time on their costumes yep. than the studio spent on wonder woman's costume mm-hmm. uh brenton 8090 says i'll wait and see but i'll i'll give it a season at most it kind of screams ally mcwonder woman 
Um, Larry King says, I voted, hated it, uh, mainly because of the pants. Uh, Maximus, Maximus Riff says, sometimes I think you put these pull-ups just to see us rant about how we hate it, so you can look like the reasonable ones. Oh, <laughs> uh, he's on to us, boys. <laughs> Tidge says, I love it. I think that, that it will look good in action, especially with post-production taken into account. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Clubber Lang says, the costume looks totally impractical. And I was one fool. crime in a tight him. suit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, somebody says, I was hoping for something more wait, of wait, a Xena feel. Clubber says... You can't wear a tight suit to fight crime, and then he also wants a xenophile. Now, I'm not saying that the two are entirely different, but Lucy Lawless was pretty well shoved into that leather and brass number. You were hoping she, for something like that, though, right, Rodrigo? I was. I, I've always, armor. I've always, I've always felt that you know Wonder Woman could, like, you could take that Xena look and adapt it to Wonder Woman, and it would make for a more believable, uh costume for wonder woman you know so that she wasn't essentially in a uh in, in a bathing suit mm-hmm. um while still um having her in essentially a cheerleader outfit which mm-hmm. is kind of what wonder woman wears yeah. kind of yeah and for those who say she looks like a, a, a stripper or a cheap hooker first of all i work in a call center so i work close up with may strippers and x strippers and possibly hookers. And I'll say this, any of them in their work clothes will be showing a lot more skin, being a lot, you know, looter and tighter and more inappropriate. You know, it, it, I don't think that it goes into trampy territory at all. I really don't think that, especially given that it covers about three times as much skin as the actual costume. Right, exactly. So it's not like, you know, they, they upped the hooter factor or something. It's, it's a Wonder Woman costume with pants. She's more covered, and I don't think the hooker thing holds a lot of water. I, I do wonder, though, if it's if if there isn't a value judgment to go along with the comment, if people are just like, she looks like a whore, what they actually mean is, she looks like a whore. Good job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what she looks like in the comic. She looks like an expensive whore, and that's the kind <laughs> that we like. All right, everybody, you can head over to the Majorspoilers.com website. You can vote in the poll of the week for yourself and also uh, share your comments, thoughts, ideas on this. Uh, and, you know, right now, people should also be aware that this is a pilot only that they've done. they got to wait for the pilot to be accepted before yeah, they go on to an entire series. So there you go. Uh, also, while you are over at the site, be sure to check out some of our other stories, such as the retro review of Hulk magazine number 23 <laughs> from, like, the 70s or 80s or something. What's going on in that? Uh, what goes on in that uh, issue, Matthew? Oh, it's a it's a Bruce Banner after school special, ladies and gentlemen. And if you if you know anything about comics, you will recognize this book as Bruce Banner gets accosted in a YMCA shower. So it's it, yeah, you kind of have to see it to believe it. Quite frankly, okay. Well, I'll head over there and read it right now. You should go click it. Actually, I'll wait till after the show's over. And then click all the ads. Okay, I'll do that. Also, and then make a lot of posts that say, Stephen, give Matthew money because the Luthor <laughs> dollars don't go as far as they used to. Hey. If you are a gamer, you are probably interested in last week's opinion about does the Wii need an upgrade or not. One of our writers, Sam, decided <laughs> she would take a crack at this. And honestly, Rodrigo, she almost had me convinced that the Wii doesn't need an upgrade. Maybe your Wii needs an upgrade, but I hardly know her. Hey, hey, hey. And then, of course, check out Rodrigo's uh, piece on bad translations. We talked about this last week. And if you've got a moment, click on the Major Spoilers Adventures number 86 by far. It's got to be my most favorite Major Spoilers Adventures to date. Bruce did some amazing work there. 
All right, everybody. Uh, Majorspoilers.com is where we want you to head, and we're going to take this quick break, and when we come back, some listener email and some reviews. And this time, we mean it. How to get a Major Spoilers shout-out. If you want to get a personalized shout-out at the top of the show, all you have to do is the following steps. Number one, visit Majorspoilers.com. Two, click on the Make a Donation button. Three, Donate $10 or more to the cause. Four, sit back and relax and hear Matthew butcher your name and say something cute about you. Major spoilers, bringing the good stuff since 20-06. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone who contributes to the Major Spoilers experience and the Major Spoilers cause. We appreciate the donations, however large or small. They help us do our thing. We knew that voodoo that we do and blow the rhyme scheme and... You know what else I like? I like it when people write to us, such as uh, Craig uh, from the UK who says, <laughs> First off, the usual love of the show keeps me entertained on my way to work each morning on the train, and I have to try and contain my laughter so I don't look like a crazy person to everyone around me. So you know, on to my point... Trying to contain your laughter does, doesn't really... <laughs> on the Saturday show, you were talking about movie franchises, as I, and I was wondering what you guys thought of creating an animated movie which continues from the DC online trailers. I've watched the two game trailers, and I think the CGI is awesome, badass Superman is awesome, and overall everything is awesome. As soon as I thought, saw these, my first thoughts were, this is awesome. No, please make this into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this will ever be made into a movie? Is it a good thing to try and have, or is it just marketing for the online game? Uh, should we just leave it there? Would it take a long time to do all the CGI and thus cost too much to produce? Thank you so much for the show. That's Craig Wilson in Scotland, UK. Well, the answers are no, no, yes, and more than likely. Not necessarily. Thanks for calling, Craig. Oh. Rodrigo, you've seen these trailers, right? I think so. The big fighty fighty with the Superman and the end of the world and Brainiac mm -hmm. showing up. Would that make a cool movie? Um, probably. See, the I think the interesting thing about uh, the question here is that it's like, should these just be advertisements for video games or should they make a movie out of them? The The answer is yes. I mean, if you consider that Transformers were just half an hour commercials mm -hmm. for toys, why not make you a movie? You shut your mouth. Soundwave is a god. Right. <laughs> and you learn valuable a, life lessons. At a marketing god. <laughs> well, you know, people have been saying this for years about um, Blizzard's World of Warcraft. If you've seen those cutscenes and those... Uh, teasers that they have created, they are stunning 3D animation. I mean, mm -hmm. whoa, they would blow anything that DreamWorks or that Pixar is doing out of the water. And certainly what we saw for this uh, bit for DC Universe Online was of high caliber, fast-paced action, all of that. Uh, yes, it would make a very good movie. Should we use these in place of a game? Would you make more money that way? I'm not sure. Unfortunately, with DC Universe Online, I think that DC would take and Warner Brothers would take the approach that this needs to be a direct-to-DVD movie. I don't think that they would release it in the theaters, which is going to cut down on the amount of money that you're going to make for the movie. So that would throw the 3D out of it. Uh, the second thing, the second question is, would it take too long to do all the CGI? You can spend as much time as you want on CGI. You know, it's, pro it's going to take about the same length to do really crappy uh, uh -huh. naughty CGI as it does to take really good Blizzard Entertainment CGI. It's going to take about a year and a half to do all this stuff once the models are made and once you develop the story. It's the story that's going to be really telling. So uh, I think you could spend a lot of money on it. 
but I think the result, the end result would be worth it. And yes, I wouldn't mind seeing these stretched out to a movie. Matthew? But there are, there are a couple of issues that we haven't touched on. Sure. Primarily, the reason why these kick so very much ass is because the simpleness of quality control on a 30-second or 90-second trailer is considerably simpler than quality controlling a 90-minute movie. Yeah, that's true. And the argument of, well, we may need to cut corners to hit a release date will almost certainly come into play. Secondly, part of the reason those trailers are so damned awesome is because they're trailers. They, they, are, they, they ask you questions. And because it's a first-person online PG game, whatever you want to call it, a mamorpaga, you're going to answer those questions for yourself. You're going to go in and you're going to create, you know, the the amazing Ophidian, you know, god of spiders or whatever you want to do. Right. And you are going to be a part of that world. So as trailers for something that you drag yourself into, I think they're great. As trailers for a movie where, say, Steven wrote it and Superman doesn't fly – I think it's going to turn into a, that costume is too plasticky and that girl is fat. I yeah. think that part of the reason they're successful is because they don't have to answer. They say, what will happen when you come to the DC universe? That answer is personal for every one of the 50,000 customers. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to try and run it through a focus group and find an answer that kind of pleases half those people. I think if you just tell a good story doesn't matter yeah you know but to be good honest story is completely subjective to be honest i think I'll, and this is going to anger a lot of people i think a lot of the superhero movies that we're getting right now would probably be better as really high quality cgi and 3d animated films. <gasps> you bastard i think it lends more to the comic book nature of the film i think that you can do more of the special effects than what you would be able to do in um in a traditional movie um, yeah, there's there's an issue though, and that is the same issue that we had with cartoons, and that right. we still have with cartoons, which is that CG is a medium for children in the United mm-hmm. States. That's that's how they see it. Just like yep. you know, animated, uh, like regardless of the length or the amount of work that goes into it, animated stuff is for kids. Now we as uh, giant nerds are aware that there's other stuff out there. For example, you know, some of the stuff that we didn't touch on necessarily with Akira, um, you know, that, that, that does appeal to adults and you can't have animation for adults mm-hmm. um, without it being, without it being dirty adult animation. Right. Um, so it's going to be like, if Marvel had released or was going to release Thor as a CG movie, it would have to be aimed at kids at this point. There hasn't, nobody has stepped up to say, you know what? I'm going to make a CG movie for an adult audience. Well, there was Avatar. I mean, that's, there was billions upon billions of dollars that, and it wasn't the same 13 that's, year old going no, out. That was still, that was a live action movie. That movie had dudes in it. Yep. Well, I can, I can see that. I will also say this though, Rodrigo and to Matthew, uh, when you watch Captain America, you're going to see a lot of CGI in there. Yeah, but there, uh, that's, that's that is, the difference. Is yeah. CGI is going to be used to pretend like cool live action stuff mm-hmm, is happening, mm-hmm. as opposed to CGI being used to have cool CGI stuff happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, I personally, I just think there's a lot of films, not all of them, but there's a lot of them that would lend themselves to just better be CGI animated. All right. Thank you, uh, Craig, for writing in. And listener, if you have a question, listeners, if you have a question, all you have to do is drop us an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. All right. All of that is out of the way. Let's get to some reviews. Wait, what's not there? Oh, wait, we did that. Let's do the time warning. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, let's not time warp anymore tonight, you guys. Uh, Rodrigo, when you were born in 85. Have you seen the original version? I was born in 1983. Have you seen Once the again, original version? I was born in 1983. <laughs> I'm going to say next time, 1986. Uh, have you and seen the original unedited version of E.T., the one where they're actually carrying around shotguns <laughs> instead of uh, walkie-talkies and all of that? Yes, I have. Okay. Uh, I've seen uh, funny story. Um, my mom <laughs> went That's to a see stupid alien. My mom, yeah, she went to see ET. I think when she was pregnant with me, because I think it came out like either in early like '83, yeah, it was in, in the '80s, or or like, in '82, like late '82, um, early '83, I think. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, Mexicans gestate for about six or seven years, <laughs> so it could have been any right. any amount of time, like um, an elephant. And she, uh. She she cried and cried and cried and cried after seeing it, and, and she was just, like, inconsolable. And my dad has always told me, he's like, yeah, that movie really touched her, and that's why you look like you do. <laughs> E.T. the Extraterrestrial was one of those movies that showed that, you know, humans and aliens could have some good contact with one another. This was uh, essentially Steven Spielberg's follow-up to the 1977 Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie. Uh, let's flash forward to 2011. And Simon Pegg and Nick Frost with their movie, Paul, uh, which is tells the story of two British sci-fi comic book fans who happen to come to the San Diego Comic-Con and then decide to take a trip across the United States in their Winnebago and see all of the famous UFO hotspots, one of them being Area 51. Along their adventures, they uh, run into a wrecked car and just so happen to find a real-life alien gray walking and talking voiced by the ever-funny and often-high Seth Rogen. Uh, they take up an adventure to get uh, Paul back to where he needs to go to be picked up by his ship, and on the way, they learn a little something about each other and about the universe and about everyone around them. Uh, this was written by Frost and Peg. It was directed by Craig Matola. And I gotta tell you, if you want a modern take on E.T., this is a movie that kind of fits that bill. Now, E.T. the Extraterrestrial was really aimed at all audiences. PG, I think it was PG, PG-13. I know my sister saw it. She was 10 at the time, so it had to be PG. Was she, it? Yeah. Were, were there, were, wait, were there film ratings back then? Yeah, there were, back in 82. PG-13 didn't come out until, like, Gremlins a few years later. Uh, but PG, I remember she bawled her head off, just like your mom, bawled her head off at E.T. dying and all that stuff. Um, Paul is... Obviously, an R rating, so it's not something you can take the kids to. And the only reason that it has an R rating is because of the foul language. Not the foul language that comes from Seth Rogen or the foul language that comes from Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, but the foul language that comes from Kristen Wiig, who, pay, who plays a uh, very conservative religious Christian who is suddenly had her reality transformed with her encounter with Paul. And so suddenly she feels like... Since the Earth is not 4,000 years old, she can fornicate and she can say all the words that she wants to say. And so she spends the remainder of the movie uh, using foul language badly, <laughs> often to very humorous effect. Uh, chasing them across the western United States is Jason Bateman as a, uh, I don't know, special agent, CIA, FBI, some kind of a spook agency. And the man, who we don't really see until the very final moments of the film, played by Sigourney Weaver. Uh, again... Very adult uh, in the uh, in the language, but the theme is really the same. I mean, here are two people coming to grips with a change in their reality, and they're evolving. 
Um, I, I'm sure you guys have seen um, Shaun of the Dead and what's the what's the police cop? Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz movie that they've done. A lot of the same players from those movies are in this one. Uh, but you know that while on the surface it's a comedy, there's a lot of more seriousness that comes up underneath. I mean, uh, Shaun of the Dead wasn't funny all the way throughout. Towards the end it got kind of serious. Uh, that's what happens here. And I think they've done a great job. This movie encompasses basically the last 50 years of sci-fi movie and explains them away as a result of Paul. We were talking about E.T. and we were talking about Close Encounters of the uh, Third Kind. Uh, at the beginning, when Paul is kind of relaying his history with them, he crashed uh, basically at um, the Roswell, New Mexico crash. The government basically hired him out. Anybody could call and ask him for advice. He was kind of a consultant. And they do a flashback to 1980 where Paul is in this warehouse talking to somebody on the phone. And the, and he's talking about how Paul says he can heal people with touch, which he can in the movie. And they, they play that out several times throughout the movie. And he's explaining it uh, in, in a very big way. And this voice on the other end is like, you mean he could heal by touch? He goes, yeah, yeah, just use a, use a finger and he could probably heal anything and bring anything back to life. And the guy on the other end is like, wow, that's a great idea. Thank you, Paul. Sure, no problem, Mr. Spielberg. And so you're like, ha, 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 he's joking about E.T. and how Paul was kind of the basis for E.T. Then you watch the credits and you see Steven Spielberg as himself. Nice. It was a great touch. It's a great movie. I know it, it scored like fifth in the box office for the opening weekend, which isn't a big, isn't a big score. Uh, but I thought it was a wonderful movie, and I think a lot of you will like it as well if you go out and check it. Uh, the editing, the storytelling, the characters are all well done. There are a few moments where it gets a little tiring, uh, but those are moments are, are very few. I'm giving this four out of five slices of meatloaf. That's Paul. Go check it out. You haven't seen Paul yet, Rodrigo? I have not. Uh, Matthew, you probably have not seen I've Paul. seen the trailers. Yeah, what do you think of the trailers? Are they four uh, out of five slices for you? Man, the trailers are about a three. I might see them if I happen to be in a theater and I, you know, needed. Someplace. You know what? The the funny moments are right there in the trailer, but that's fine because there's so much story that is being told outside of the funny bits that I think is really, really well done. All right, Matthew, let's go to you. Last Hello. week, last week, Dynamite Entertainment released Vampirilla number four. <laughs> It's really kind of ironic because uh, Vampirella bears a lot of resemblance in the latest incarnation to the con the current discussed about Wonder Woman in that she's no longer wearing her skimpy little bathing suit. Right. She's actually wearing pants and a leather jacket, and it really, really works. The first thing that catches my eye, and I believe it's uh, Wagner Rice and Fabiano Neves. I believe Fabiano, Fabiano, Fabiano. Either way, the first thing that you see in the issue is Vampirella in the shadows with this blood red shirt and a little chain necklace of her old Vampirella symbol that's usually much lower. Right. Um, <laughs> and it looks really good. It makes her look very modern. It's clearly Vampirella. And then fighty fighty time. Apparently Dracula is trying to take over the world with his evil vampires. And no Vampirella. Way. I know, yeah. right? Go figure. Vampirella starts chopping them up, and she has these really cool, like, knuckle duster knives that are her silver gold Vampirella symbols, which is, you know, a pretty cool concept. It makes sense of why she would wear that enormous symbol. Uh, they're not actually silver, which I think kills vampires, but I'll go with that because it's a color palette thing. And then she fights 
the alien worms from Dune. Or maybe of Doom. Oh, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Again, the art is really, really strong. There are a couple of moments where it's clear that there's some phallic imagery going on, but it's not inappropriately clear. Right. Unless you're really, really a terrible pervert. So Stephen and I saw it right away. (laughs) But um, about halfway through the issue, there is an incredibly beautiful, just a panel. And I look at it and I'm staring at it right now. Crimson Skies, Vampirella standing there in her blood red top. A little cleavage. Again, it's Vampirella, Mm -hmm. but not like naked. Right. Black and red outfit against a red background, and oh my god, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I looked at it, and I thought that it looked like a, a cross between uh, Choi and um, the Dodsons, especially in the eyes and the face when you see there's that. A, there's a lot of Dodson. There's there's some more anatomically correct Jim Ballant, mm-hmm. especially in the panel where she whirls, and she's got you know that kind of Betty Page haircut. Yeah. Really, really great work on the art. The story... Mm, it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. It's not necessarily something that I'm immediately going, wow, this is an amazing new concept. It's a vampire fights against her own, which is a strong thing. There's also a moment where, for those of you who are waiting for the nudity and the boobies, Vampirella meets her old self, apparently undead Vampirella or wait herself. Yeah, I know, right? So isn't the opposite of an undead undead? Wouldn't that be she's alive? Interesting approach. In any case, uh, a zombie dressed up in her old suit shows up and she fights herself away. And it turns out it's all a dream, a horrible dream. And then she gets to fight against Dracula himself. Bum, bum, bum. And usually I have these complaints about specifically computer effects and computer coloring when they're not well integrated. Mm-hmm. The last page of this issue has a quick draw sequence where Vampirella whips out a couple of giant guns and you see bullets in Matrix time and there's like a huge digital effect and it works. It's not muddy. It doesn't, you know, draw attention to itself. It gives a sense of, you know, dynamic movement to the static image. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's really an example of how to integrate those super glowy color effects you know, your motion effects, whatever you want to do with your Photoshop to put them into the book and have them enhance what's already there. And I think, right. you know, the strong art, very strong coloring. It's hard to do something that's all shadows and black and black on black right. and not have it come out muddy. Mm-hmm. They do really good work here. I'm actually very pleasantly surprised by the latest Vampirella series, especially the cover of the issue that I picked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helena Dyrdovic, who I believe may be related to Marco Dyrdovic, who works over at Marvel. It's Vampirella in a big black coat with her big black hair against a, a bright moon, a super moon, if you will. Yeah. Oh, it's purdy. It is purdy, purdy, purdy. It's photorealistic without making me vomit like Alex Ross. So. Yeah, there were four different covers, each a 25% release on that, which uh, I got the uh, Alagarza uh, cover. The Garza? It's different. The Garza is pretty. The Garza, I think, appeals to your inner J. Scott Campbell fan. Well, yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, this weekend at the uh, C2E2 convention in Chicago at the Dynamite panel, somebody asked, you know, when are we going to get to see Vampirilla back in her old costume? And the response was, she's in her original costume on the cover of every issue. And she is indeed. And because covers are no longer meant to be representational of the interiors, Mm -hmm. that kind of works for me. 
Yeah. I, I like the fact that they nod to the fact that this woman basically runs around in a dish towel for 35 <laughs> years. But now she's in a point where it makes sense for her to be actually covered. And it works. And she's still clearly Vampirella. They play with those design elements and they make it work for me. This is a very strong book. I'm going to go with four and a half slices of meatloaf. Wow. That's high praise from Matthew. Yeah. yeah. It, it, if the story had that, you know, that absolute killer hook, it would be a five-star title. As it is, it's still a very strong story. It's about what Vampirella is doing. And if you know Vampirella history, I'm sure there's more, you know, the bits and pieces that I know tie into it well. And, you know, if, if you love Dune, there's a big worm thing in it. Yep, exactly. And I think Kyle McLaughlin appears in the background. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, listeners, as you know, if you've been over to the Majorspoilers.com website or listening to this show, uh, listen to this show for quite some time, you do know that we like to talk about tomorrow's comics today. Tomorrow's comics from the future. Rodrigo uh, traveled to the future briefly. I think uh, he was chasing after that time-traveling Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Picked up a copy of Boom Studios' Walt Disney's Comics number 717 that comes out this week. Yes, I did. Um, Disney, let's see. It's, it's, it's interesting because they actually changed the name. It's Walt Disney's Comics, and it used to be Walt Disney's Comics and Stories. Right, right. But I think this issue, they've, they've officially changed it to Walt Disney's Comics and then nothing else. But, um, so no more stories. No, just comics. Just comics. Um, this is a, an anthology. So mm -hmm. it's got, it's got several, stories uh the first one is about scrooge mcduck who's gonna be your your uh your headliner for pretty much anything you do um on account of being super famous uh this one is about him trying to get away from this stalker chick who really wants him bad um wait this is a kid's book yes her name is voracia She's, she looks really weird and, uh -huh. you know, purposefully she's like really weird looking chick. So she convinced, so he convinces his half brother, Rumpus, who I'd never heard of. Um, but I, I haven't, I haven't kept track of the 600 years of, uh, Scrooge <laughs> McDuck continuity. Yeah. yeah. Um, to pose as Scrooge and convince her. To leave him alone. So basically, Rumpus is going to pretend to be him, um, and then and then try to be mean to her, which of course sort of backfires in that she does leave Scrooge alone, but then falls in love with Rumpus and then proceeds to stalk him. Um, the other one is like the next story is about Mickey Mouse being mischievous, which was really weird. Yeah. Um, and he like plays a prank on Clarabelle, the cow. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, what? Mickey Mouse doesn't have a personality. <laughs> he wasn't always the whiny master of ceremonies. Right, he right. Wasn't always and that's, and that's fine. Um, but it is weird to see him not just in a story that involves a prank, but as the aggressor as far as the prank goes. So that, that was interesting. Um, although it wasn't, and there wasn't any Mickey Mouse-ishness really to, to go with it. Um, then I think the last story is a story about date. No, there's, there's two more. The one's a story about Daisy, uh, Daisy Duck and about how she, like basically Donald's nephews wreck something that she's keeping track of 
and you know she she kind of has to go all through town and, and gather up the pieces and then the other one's about donald trying to keep his nephews out of the refrigerator and of course it all backfires in his face because he uh i don't know has a curse on him it's it's pretty rough being donald duck all in all i mean these are these are old school disney stories right um they kind of have they have a, a little bit of a moral um they are very family friendly not you know these are all kind of your archie style plot lines without any like big consequences or anything like that which is fine um all around i'd give it uh three slices of meatloaf the art of course is is pretty solid disney i'm, I'm guessing house art you know because all if you look at most of the disney comics the characters are exactly as they always look right um, and it's really amazing with that too because uh, in one story, you have art by William Van Horn, and then another one in the Donald Duck Surprise Party, it's Walt Kelly, who's a you know old school Disney animator. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really good that they can keep that that house style. Now, maybe I read someplace, and this this might be wrong, but it's, I, I read some somewhere that two of these stories had never appeared in the U.S. before, and that may be so. I think you're um, right. Yeah. Which I, I don't remember which two, but I mean that's interesting. I mean they they might have not even originally been written in English, but that's speculation, which I'm not good at. So <laughs> I mean I I enjoyed it. I would be uh, I'm, I'm probably not gonna go back and find the 716 issues that went before this, but I certainly wouldn't mind uh, you know catching up with this every once in a while. Yeah, excellent. Oh, Walt Kelly, in in addition to being a Disney animator, uh, Pogo. Um, yep. did that for years, so. He created the pogo stick? No, not the pogo, pogo stick. Pogo the you... possum, you student. <laughs> Are you familiar with Pogo the possum, Rodrigo? I am not. Oh, uh, I sense a time. future review. Oh, future child. Review. Well, Rodrigo was born in 1983, remember that. I remember 1983. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about creature tech. So stick around. That wasn't a very long break. It's because nobody sent us comments this week. Nobody likes us. We're major spoilers. We're faithful spoilers, and we go like this. <laughs> no wonder That's right. They... We are turning on you. Turning on you, spoilerites. How dare you? <laughs> no wonder nobody calls in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but if somebody did want to call in, what number would they call in to? 785-727-1939. The major spoilers. <sighs> Hotline. By the way, don't call 866 and the rest of that number because a girl named Jenny wants to tell you about her bra. I'm not sure what that's all about. Huh. Okay. Hey, this week we are reading uh, Creature Tech from Doug Tenapel. Tenapel? Tenapel. Tenapel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if we're mispronouncing your name, Doug. Is it Tenapel? Wait. I'm just going to say Doug. What did you think it is, Rodrigo? I'm Doug, and you're I think dead. If I think I saw a video of him drawing, and he introduced himself a Doug Ten Naple, and like he, he, and the other thing is he specifically puts that space between Ten and Naple because it is two, it's two words, isn't it? No, it's one word, but he it's capitalizes one word. the second N. in. Right. It. Okay. So Creature Tech came out last year uh, as a graphic novel. It came out in 2010, and it is the story of Doctor Ong. Uh, one of the most brilliant scientists in the world, who grew up in a very small 
we would say hillbilly redneck town in, in California. Uh, grew up with a very religious father who's actually the uh, one of the town preachers. Found out that his father was actually a scientist before he discovered God, and so he goes off to find his way in the scientific world. One day he gets a call from the government and says, hey, guess what? We are going to put you in charge of RTI, this research, um, what is it? Research Technological or Technical Institute. And he thinks, hey, this is great. I'll be able to check out all of these great scientific mysteries that the government has uncovered. Turns out it's back in his hometown. Dope. So we end up, this book is really fascinating in that um, one day he's back at the lab and they discover that in one of the crates is the Shroud of Turin. And not a fake Shroud of Turin, but the actual Shroud of Turin that can bring dead things back to life. Uh, there is a ghost that wants to uh, take this Shroud of Turin so he can bring himself <laughs> back to life. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But in the process of trying to get this, uh, the Shroud, the ghost unleashes these alien creatures. And one of them is a um, parasitic a tick, if you will. Basically. And it attacks the good doctor and it latches himself on to his chest. If you remove the symbiote, he dies. And so they're going to have to learn to coexist in this town of people who are pretty close-minded. Along the way, we this book is just filled with interesting characters. We meet a seven-foot-tall uh, praying mantis. We meet a couple of hillbillies. We meet a girl that uh, Dr. Ong knew when he was younger who is... Uh, uh, She's got uh, an atrophied arm, and she's got something wrong with her eye. I forget. She's yeah, bad eye. eye. Bad eye. Um, we meet, essentially, uh, Dr. Ong's research assistant, who, you know, at first appearance looks like a Joe Average. Yeah. And he taught himself quantum physics to get this job. See, I don't know that I would call the people close-minded. I think no. that a lot of them are very... Like, for instance, the, the gentleman who runs the, the alien museum, they're mm -hmm. very stuck in their own rut. But right. Jim is a great example. Jim is like teaching himself this. And he looks like, you know, junior samples. Right. But he is a scientist on the level of doc. And I always pronounced it in my head, Dr. Wrong, because it's funny. Mm. It's like the, the opposite of Dr. Who. It's Dr. Wrong. But that's just me. So Jim you, is like, um, Jim. This is a story that basically uh, the villain of this story is a 150 year old um, scientist, half demon, <laughs> yeah. who was killed when he was trying to bring giant eels down from space to destroy the world <laughs> simply because he could. <laughs> in order to do this, he actually made a deal with a, a demon. And in order to prevent his soul from going to hell, he cut the demon's arm off or hand off and s attached it to his own hand. So that yep. way he's always has a connection and, and can't, uh, can't be taken to the land below. And essentially he wants the, um, the shroud of Turin so that he can resurrect himself and resurrect, uh, this giant eel that crashed to earth 150 years before. It's a fascinating story because it, it takes different cultures, different thought processes, different attitudes, different beliefs systems, and smashes them into this little small town community. Yeah. Huh? And I and think it's a fascinating story. It really is. I went in kind of like, well, what's this all about? And about 
maybe 10 or 12 pages in, I started getting hooked on just the little set pieces, the bits that, you know, are brilliant. So I started, I'm like, this feels kind of familiar and it feels like things. And I started looking at the thing that it reminded me of, which is I used to work a Saturday morning shift at a CBS affiliate. Mm -hmm. And there used to be a show called Project Geeker. And Geeker was this auto, this like fake artificial life form who liked to eat chocolate monkeys and had the voice of Philip J. Fry. Nice. And I'm like, this kind of reminds me. And of course, I find out that actually Doug Tenable was also part of that show as well. So I was just, you know, I, I was really impressed by that. And of course, anytime the ghost showed up, I heard the uh, the robot chicken sketch with Montezuma's resent revenge. <laughs> you know, most people are going to know the author from Earthworm Jim. He was basically uh-huh. the creator. Really? Of that. Yeah, he created the uh, the video game series, the cartoon oh. series, all of the merchandising for that. Um, so when you start to look at this, my first thing was when I when we first get to these pictures of the people, I was like, man, their eyes look really familiar. Yeah. And then I realized, oh wait a minute, this is the Earthworm Jim guy. And yep. now the art makes complete sense. I want to talk more about the art a little bit later, but I wanted to kind of give that marker so people kind of knew where we were coming from with this book. Um, Rodrigo, what are your thoughts of this of this book? What are some interesting – just give me a general overview of your thought of this book, and then we'll kind of dive into characters and then themes next. Uh, I, really, this this book does two things for me. It it um, It's a really – insanely wacky story in which you know the the ultimate goal is to prevent a crazy ghost from resurrecting a giant eel from space from space um and on the other hand it's a story about a man coming to terms with his father mm-hmm. you know in, in, a, in a in a very very real and very straightforward way you know it's like it's he's someone and 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 this is this is something that a lot of people can relate to. You know, your, your father makes some small decision or, or some large decision, and, and you know he's not the person that you thought he was. You feel betrayed by him mm-hmm. in, in some way, mm-hmm. and and Ong feels sort of betrayed. He, he feels that his dad kind of betrayed science by becoming a, a, a preacher, right? And and how could he? And and it's it, you know interestingly enough, it is through these scientific discoveries and these strange occurrences and, and him applying his science to it, that Ong begins to, that Michael, is that his first name? I that he, his name is. Um, that he finds kind of his place in the universe and really basically starts to believe, starts to believe that there's something mm-hmm. out there, that there is some sort of unifying force and that it kind of doesn't matter exactly what it is. Right. It actually matters more than it is. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really kind of fascinates me about this ah! is if I'm looking at it some of the me. themes, uh, one of them would be that it's a basically a collection of misfits and outcasts, right? Here, Michael Ong, Michael is his first name, um, leaves the small town uh, of Turlock, basically says, I'm better than this. I'm going to go out into the world and be better than you small-minded, closed community people. And then he's basically forced to come back and work for the government until his job is done. And on the one hand, he kind of feels himself superior to everybody else in the town. Here you've got the local curator of the mysterious artifacts who's always trying to uh, to say it's a space alien or look, there's Jesus's well, face on the on the Cinnabon. You've the, got the hilarious the, 
the hilarious thing about that character is that he was running that before Creature Tech, which is what they come to call the Institute, right. was put there. And it kind of ran him out of business because now there are actual aliens in the town and actual <laughs> right. weird happenings. So his basically his little hoax factory doesn't work anymore. Right. Uh, you've got his daughter who or granddaughter who has uh, these ailments, who is basically she wants to belong with everyone else. But because of her uh, disfigurements and her ailments, she just doesn't fit in. You've got these uh, two redneck brothers in town who are really uh, we meet them as they're working on the car. And he's like, hand me the quarter inch socket. I don't know quarter inch. What's quarter inch? Come on, just hand it to me. Oh, here comes Dr. Ong. He's riding a Japanese motorcycle. And, uh, you know, they make a point of those kinds of things. Uh, you have, uh, at one point you have this, uh, I forget what his name is. He's a mantid is what his name is, but I forget what, it, or Blue. what he is. Blue. Blue. Uh, seven foot tall, uh, praying mantis who is right. sent there to kind of work security and he doesn't fit in. Um, but over the course of this book, everybody finds their place. Everybody finds where they belong. And it's real interesting because after the attack, when Dr. Ong finds that he's attached to this, this space tick, uh, that he finds out that he's actually the outcast when he thought that he was above everyone else. And now he has to come to grips with his situation. And so on that, on that sense, I kind of like that, or at least that's what I kind of got a part of it out of is this theme about outcasts finding really their place in amongst themselves and making it work. I don't get the sense that anyone necessarily feels outcast. I think for me, it was kind of the opposite thing in that, yes, this looks like your stereotypical weird little town from any number of Twilight Zone episodes, but a lot of these people are relatively sanguine. They're happy with what they do, you know? The guy who, uh, the moment where the the ghost comes in and the guy who runs the butcher shop is like, oh, you got money? Is this gold? Heck yeah, I'll sell you. Wait, why is all the meat alive? You know, the moments when the characters are in themselves, I think... For me, I got the feeling that Dr. Ong wanted to believe that this was a closed-minded right, community. Right. And that, but it turns out that everybody was just as weird as him because when Blue shows up, you know, the two redneck brothers practically adopt him. There's a, there's yeah. a grasshopper on my commode. <laughs> so- and then all of a sudden they, te- they teach him, and now here, you need, you need a vest and you need a shotgun. We're going to have to civil H's. <laughs> you know, it's, it, this, this book is, I don't know. I don't know if you guys have seen the Middlemen or the Middleman, uh, that series and uh, the comic book series, and then the one that was on ABC Family for a while. Uh, there are elements of that in there. There are elements of there was that um, uh, sci-fi show where it was basically it was a research institute uh, where crazy things happen. I think that was on ABC not too long ago. Um, there are elements of the X Files. There are elements of Buffy in here that I just found fascinating in this mix mash of stuff put in here. And I found it so endearing. I I want to, you know, unfortunately I don't think we ever will, but I want to read more adventures of the people of Turlock, to be honest with you. I mean, the end scene where basically the, um, the bad guy, the demon, or we'll call him a demon, but the mad scientist, um, he's basically raising demon cats all throughout the town and here are the two uh, redneck guys 
driving in their pickup truck with Blue, and Blue's just chopping their heads off with his mantis arms, and they're like, yeah, let's get them! Let's show you how you do it! And they're plugging them with the shotguns from the truck, and it's just such a fun moment where they're like coalescing into this unit of, it doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like, we're here doing this together. And I, and I really get a kick out of that. Yep. There's some, there's some really great moments and, and sometimes going back and thinking about it, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing where like, I sure would like to see a creature tech movie, but there's things that I think only the comic will be able to do. I think that little thing with the meat monster right. is, is hilarious and, and kind of, uh, horrifying. Um, blue briefly dies. Mm-hmm. And he goes to Manted Heaven, <laughs> and it's 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 amazing just just because of what happens there. Um, yeah. you and, can totally hear the music. Oh, yeah, exactly. Actually, more um, like thoracic. Uh, yeah, just something. like Thor- thoracic park. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is, and 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 this, if they did do a movie, this this would be somewhat central to it. But there's a moment in which uh, Doctor Ong kind of really finally becomes one with the parasite right. you know, with, with his, with the symbiont and, and sees what, what it means to be part of a unit, um, which is what he's been fighting his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that kind of has, is, is a really cool moment, but it's also like everything else that happens, an incredibly trippy moment. Yeah. Oh Yeah. I mean, this book is full of trippy. I mean, a giant space worm here. I thought, what was that guy that, uh, what was in the 1930s, Matthew, that had the strange, those really trippy comic books that everyone's so keen on now that had the space. Fletcher Hanks. Fletcher Hanks. You know, when I first read this, I mean, Rodrigo kind of throws us books every once in a while that I'm not sure if he's doing it to punish us or if he, you know. Or if he's actually high. Yes. And so when I open it up and see giant space worms or space eels, uh, I'm thinking, oh, no. What have you gotten us into? Because Rodrigo doesn't tell us anything about the books. He's just like, here, read this. We need to review this. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so we have to have a little bit of faith going into this. And, um, you know, in the end, this one really paid off. And it's bizarre on so many levels. And it's also a love story. Here, yes. Dr. Ong has come back to this town and he's fallen in love with Katie, uh, this girl. And he doesn't know what it is. He used to tease her when they were younger, and now he feels something. And uh, the grandfather who runs the hokum shop is basically trying to keep them apart. Yeah. And he's trying, sweet... to, he's trying to protect his granddaughter is what he's trying to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's just sweet romantic parts, like the time when he shows up outside of her window. And because now with this parasite attached to him, he's got two other arms, so he's holding four bouquets of flowers. And they go off riding on on his motorcycle. Yep. I wish he uh, I wish he had a boombox over his head. That would, <laughs> that would have worked really well too. The Shroud of Turin bit is real interesting too, because it's bringing things back to life. And of course, we've got this guy that can summon demon cats or turn any cat into a demon. Mm-hmm. And the symbiote is able to basically learn something and then transfer it over to Doctor Ong. So at one point, uh, Michael's fighting this were cat. Uh, and he starts doing all these Kung Fu moves that the symbiote saw on television the night before. And mm-hmm. he's like, Oh, I know Kung Fu, Yep, you know, kind of stuff. It's just the story in itself is just basically what we've been talking about is really, really sweet. It's really touching and it's really a lot of fun. And then you get to the more 
serious or or I shouldn't say serious, but bigger issue of science versus religion. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think this book really gets interesting. Rodrigo? Definitely. I think that, you know, uh, the the default, the, there are kind of two default stances on on, on science, either uh, on in fiction in general. Um, you kind of have the whole, like, we are raping this planet and Mother Earth will rise up and kill our faces. Right. Um, and then the other one is, is we are killing this planet and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, airplanes are bad and the world is flat and we are religious idiots. And then the protagonists who are scientists are like, no, religious idiots. I will teach you the way. Mm-hmm. This book is neither. Mm-hmm. Yep. This yeah. book has both camps of people who are like, well, you know, I mean, obviously I believe in God. I'm a preacher. And the other guy says, well, how could you possibly believe in God? I'm a scientist. And you used to be a scientist, you crazy person. And it has the best thing about it is that it has that conversation. How can you believe in this stuff? This is how I can believe in this stuff. Oh, no. Hellcats from hell. Yeah. But okay. Since- well, let's let's just continue having this. Like the, the conversation continues throughout the book. And that's really what's good about it. Well, it's because it's a conversation that's had to have gone on for years or at least in all the years that. Michael has been back in Turlock because what motivated him to go out into the world was the fact that the story opens up with, you know, I went to seminary. I started to to do all these things. I wanted to be a preacher just like my father until one day I found out my father was a highly respected scientist and was out in the world. And I thought, hey, maybe I should do that, too. And then I suddenly realized that I'm this genius at science, and so therefore everything else is wrong, and I don't believe in God. And, And this conversation is not just about... Uh, science and, and religion between these two people. It's actually conversations between a father and a son. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got a yep. three-year-old, and I'm hoping he comes around one of these days. But that yep. kid won't listen to a thing I have to say. He's and so three. On, the one hand, on the one hand, I feel like Michael's father in that the father is trying to explain something to the son, yep. and the son doesn't want to listen. Yep. We're back on that father-son territory that we've, we've kind of been treading this for several weeks off and on. Right. Right. And that, you know, you know, I had made the joke that our big theme was animals over these last month and a half that we've been doing shows, but it's really relationships between people, mm-hmm. yep. between and really between and children's and parents. Yeah. Children's and parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's parental relationships with animals kind of as, you know, a, a totem to explain it all. Right. What, what I really love are the bits that where, where things become really I don't want to say because it, it shit got real or anything like that, but there are moments that feel very authentic. The moment where Blue is injured and they're trying to fix him and they're trying to give him CPR, but he's a mantis. Yeah. So they're having to blow into the little holes in the side of his plate, but his chitin is his chitin or his chitin, whatever you call it. I don't know. I've only read the word. His heart is broken. So they, they, they have to tape him together. Yep. So they're they're duct taping his shell together while his two redneck friends are breathing for him through the holes in his sides. And I'm just like, that moment should, could have been ridiculous. And instead, it's touching and it's powerful. And it has that, you know, that moment at the end where you get the big emotional moment and the camera pulls back and you're just like, wow. You know, this is this is you know the lone mantis of the apocalypse. This is basically you know, the the guy who plays 
Space Ghost's organ. Well, that that came out wrong. But, you know, it's it could be goofy. And it's right. not really. And even the moments where, you know, he's like, oh, my God, the creature has pierced my heart. And yet I still have blood. How can this be? A bear is driving. You you buy into those. And it comes down to, you know, a very, a very poetic moment where Dr. Ong has to fight off the, you know, the evil Montezuma. And it's just emotionally satisfying on a number of levels. And what it really breaks down to, everybody in this book is a fully realized character. The villain, the bit players, the father who could be, you know, a two-bit, well, you should have believed me when I told you that was a great or good and all of the blah, blah, blah. Everybody has their own, you know, their inner life. Everybody is more than just, Here's redneck number one, redneck number right. two, and right. generic love interest. Right. Yeah, it's it's it. Okay, so we had a conversation on the Saturday episode about um, fate, right? Mm-hmm. And it's odd when we talk about fate, and it's odd that we talk about these these weird things that are coming uh, to light, things that are happening to us. Rodrigo had basically assigned Creature Tech to us a couple of weeks ago, mm. and uh, I finally got around to reading it last last night, two nights ago, something like that, and I was really smitten with this, and I was like, oh, I like this, and I, I like this, uh, I like the villain that he's actually got this demon fist, yep. so I was thinking demon fist, demon fist, demon fist all, all this time, and I have a Twitter client, I use TweetDeck. And it's open all the time on my Mac so I can see what people are talking about and who's bad-mouthing Rodrigo so I can go and defend him. And <laughs> um, somebody, just out of the blue, somebody posted, hey there, you guys should go check out the latest page of Rat Fist. And I just happened to glance up. I was in the middle of doing something else. I happened to glance up at TweetDeck and see that post, and I was like, Rat Fist, that's kind of funny. That kind of reminds me of this villain in the book. I will click on this link... And go see what Rat Fist is about. And guess whose website it just happens to be? Doug's website. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of a a weird coincidence. And then I, they had a a contact, you know, contact us. And it was just basically one of those email forms. And, you know, I've had smaller websites and I've had websites where people uh, use those uh, basically form email forms. And I don't really get back to people right away on that. Or sometimes you post something on those and you never hear an answer back. So I just, for whatever reason, said, hey, I'm just going to fire off a quick email and just say, hey, I thought I'd let you know that we're reviewing Creature Tech tonight on the show. And within 10 minutes, I got a reply back that says, hey, thank you very much. You know, uh, you know, send me a link so I can spread it around. And it was signed by Doug. And I was like, well, that's awesome. And I wrote back and I said, well, is there something that you would like, you know, that you want to make sure that we touch on or that you uh, want to make sure that we know about. This is all happenstance. This is all this moment happened, which led to this moment, which led to this email from Doug. The part of the book that people miss, and I'm fine with people not getting everything, is that the book is about us, all of us. So if people hate religion and think it should be avoided in comics, their view is actually represented by characters in this book. My work is very layered and most modernists stop at the layers that exist above the straightforward material. Another example is how all stories about fathers and sons are about man's rebellion and God. And all stories about God and man are just about as much as fathers and sons. 
our virgin anti-religious ears need not be offended. Part of the reason why I wrote Creature Tech is that these things happen every day and I hadn't seen it addressed in comics before. Seven-foot-tall mantids represents anything strange, amazing, monstrous among us. Rednecks are here and deserve to be treated with the same diversity we assume in every other community we might explore. Creature Tech is one of my biggest all-time successes, and it sticks so well because it tells the raw, unadulterated truth. I didn't try to bug people. I just opened up my heart, my mind, and my experience in our culture at our time, and Creature Tech came out. There's a strong hand of fate or God at work in this story, and it's entirely possible that God allowed Jameson to be smashed by the space seal 200 years ago because God intended it to use these events to redeem Ong and heal Katie's body. And that's from Doug. And that's amazing. Here he's talking about faith or God or whatever it may be. Got us this email just, you know, just this afternoon. Remember, there are no coinkydinks, my friend. There are no coincidences. I will agree with you on that, Matthew. There are no coincidences. Life is a series of dogs. You know, I didn't feel the only time that I felt like religion was maybe getting a bit pushy or maybe a bit preachy is when Ong had the vision of the alien world and he saw the symbiote nailed to a, was essentially a, a, a cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only time I thought things got maybe a little bit too preachy, but it, but it worked, you know, it wasn't offensive. It wasn't I, terrible. Really then. I, I mean, even, even then, because the I mean that's that's just the most overt moment because the uh, the symbion is the vehicle for sal- for Doctor Ong's salvation. I mean, right? He it's it's being attached to this thing that gets him there, and what what really did it for me is the people that he meets when he's there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's a greater force at work. There's a reason for these horrible, you know, arachnid monstrosities that attach themselves to your central. Uh, your central valves um just like there's a reason for everything i think you know according to this uh to my read of of the of the book Mm -hmm. um as far as the conversation of should religion uh factor prominently or more prominently or at all in comics well of course it should um because everything should because comics are a medium anybody who says oh well religion shouldn't be in comics is is being ridiculous honestly because religion, you know, discussions of religion, philosophy, politics, uh, law, medicine, advancement, the place of science in the world, the place of man in the world, whether Galactus is a, uh, is a representation for nature or not, that, that all belongs in comics, just like it belongs in any other medium. Mm-hmm. Matthew, do you want to weigh in on any of the... Well... I think aspects of this book. This is one of the books that you can take away from it what you want because the religion aspect really wasn't overt to me. It wasn't something that I focused on because it was part of that father son thing. And as we've noticed in the last few weeks, you know, that is a theme that really resonates and I like it when that is done well. So the fact that the, you know, the father who had rejected his son or vice versa, was a former scientist who was now a priest, didn't necessarily register in that level. But I like the fact that we basically came away from this book with three very different takes on that same material, three different focal points 
and yet three pretty satisfactory from the sound of thing experiences for me, you know, and, there was and, that. And they're not contradictory. I think is really the, right, yeah. the important part. They're, they're different and they were all there based on the layers of it that you were reading into. Cause I like the, you know, the quiet little romance that may or may not have been in there. I, and I, I like, do too. you know, I like the, the brotherhood aspect of the ultimate out of place, out fish out of water, you know, being here's here's your shirt and here's your shotgun. You know, right. he's a he's a seven foot blue guy with a bug for a head, but we accept you, one of us, one of us, which you know is fabulous to me. I like what happened in this story simply because of the fact that when you get to the end, you don't think, oh well, I could have gone here, or it would have been great if the story went here. It kind of went everywhere, and it yeah. picked up on different things depending on what you were looking for. And I don't want to give away the actual ending ending of this book, but it has got to be one of the sweetest endings to any comic book that I have ever read. Yeah. I mean, that is just a fantastic, I mean, just the ending ending itself, those final four or five pages, simply brilliant. And then of course you've got a crazy mad scientist riding a giant space eel through the, uh, through the town blowing. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, you had mentioned Matthew. What what voice you heard of the scientist? Mm-hmm. I kept hearing Doctor Doofenshmirtz, basically. <laughs> see, this, but with more of a Transylvanian accent. See, There's a the, platypus controlling me. See, in the book, they say that he's an effeminate British guy. So right, that, right, that's right. what I heard. So you're hearing Alan Cummings. Yeah, basically, or like Stephen Fry making fun of Stephen Fry. You know. <laughs> Yeah, and I I know that, but I just kept hearing, oh yes, it's time for his blah blah blah. You know, it's just it's Hell crazy. Revenge. That's Amore. Yeah. It's a me. Wait, yeah. all of a sudden, yes, everything <laughs> evolves into Italian Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome right, to Major let's, Spoilers. Let's talk about the art. Who wants to start? Uh, I will go. Okay, you go, Matthew. Wow. Rodrigo. Also, yes. And I will I will repeat that. Holy crap. This is art. This is when when we talk about black comic booky art that's fun. Mm. I mean there's I mean Doug has a has a grasp of proportion and drawing the human figure, even though if you read in the afterward he's talking about I had to go back and learn how to draw people. Um there's just something about his style that obviously if you're familiar with Earthworm Jim or some of these other things that we've talked about, you you know his look. Mm-hmm. But the moment whenever we get to the um to the slug beast that's attack attacking everyone mm-hmm. uh, at the very beginning of the book, all I could think of was Spaceman Spiff and Bill Watterson's style. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't get away from that in how and I love Bill Watterson's style. I mean Calvin and Hobbes, oh, oh boy. This is on par and actually probably better than than that. Mm. Yeah, Doug has a has a long and prestigious pedigree in in my opinion of of amazing concepts and and especially art. Like you said, he created Earthworm Jim. He was you you know basically the lead creative impulse I think behind the Neverhood, which right, which right. has a. a which is a really weird, has a really uh, interesting look to it throughout. And, and especially in those little segments where you see the history of the, of their universe, those are all in his style. 
And you can see that this is his style, but also, um, the characters don't look like Earthworm Jim. You know, they right, don't look right. like Peter Puppy and all the other stuff, all the other characters from that uh, series. They, like, not only, this is clearly his style, but also there is a creature tech style that he's developed for this, uh, for this book. And it goes to show because, you know, everything, like, I don't know. I have, I have an issue with, uh, uh, you know, and, and I make fun of PBS cartoons all the time because I'm always watching them. Um, right. Because where, you have to, not because you want yeah, to. Yeah, because I have to. Um, <laughs> where, you know, they, the, the creator will start with some characters and then make more characters and they don't match. Mm hmm. But creature tech feels cohesive. It feels like every <laughs> character was given the same amount of development. Um, which is probably my, with my, you know, the, the, the main characters probably got a little bit more, but everything feels as fleshed out. The characters in the background don't have less detail. They are just as detailed as everything else, both story wise and art wise. Matthew, do you want to expand on your wow at all? Mm, no. Let's just leave it at wow. I'm good with you know, that. When you look at the shading in this, there's no grayscale in this. Everything is hard black and white. It's all just the straight ink, you know. Uh, and and I like that style where your highlights are white and your shadows are dark. And it does create sometimes a very flat look, but I think that it it really works here, especially when you've got like a character who is basically very light standing against a black shaded tree and that helps that person stand out. It's fantastic art. I, I want this original art. Mm -hmm. It's, it's that good. All right. Anything else, anything else you guys want to bring up or, or talk about that we may have missed in this book? It's a lot. It's a lot of book. Yeah. It's really hard to write a book with a strong central character and imply, or, you know, try to imply that that character's worldview may not exactly be what he thinks it is. And it to take that sort of moment where you know that Dr. Ong is going to have, you know, his epiphany. But from the very beginning, there's this clear thing where this is why I believe what I believe. And that makes perfect sense. And yet you can see what other people think. The characters, you know, like I said, everybody has their own point of view. And the characters who don't agree with him don't agree with him for a good reason. They're not there to be the straw man, you know, argument against whatever it is he wants. They are there to say, and here's an alternate perspective. And I like the fact that he, you know, he changes organically because of his interactions and not because of, you know, a big talky-talky, preachy, preachy, didactic moment. Yeah. Um. Who uh who writes the foreword to this book? Um, let me look here really quick. Terry Mc, uh, Mattingly, director, the Washington Journalism Center columnist, Scripps Howard News Service, and editor of uh, uh, GetReligion.org. Um, he basically says, at the very beginning, you are in a movie theater. And this does play out like a very big movie. Uh -huh. um, uh, Drew McWeenie. From Ain't It Cool News says, simply put, Creature Tech is the best American animated film since The Iron Giant. Better than Toy Story 2. Better than Shrek. Better than anything from any studio. And, you know, I read those comments afterwards, and I'm like, you're right, this, this would be an awesome animated movie. And then you get to the part in the afterword where Doug is writing, and this is April of 2010. Um, basically, he says, when I originally took the script around Hollywood and, and could barely get a reader to notice... 
But after the graphic novel was announced on Ain't It Cool News by Drew McWeeney, we had scores of requests to read it. Within 24 hours, there were movie offers. The rights were picked up by Fox New Regency. Um, let's see. And then went into pre-production hell. Yes, there's still no movie. They had John Hedder attached to play Dr. Ong, and various writers, including myself, took a crack at, uh, at three versions of the script, but nothing happened. Is this a movie that would be hard to make? It yeah. would be hard to make. It would be very difficult to make it. And, you know, like like anything, the it's it's such a daunting task that if pulled that if they if they actually managed to pull it off, it would be an incredible movie. Yeah. But that level of difficulty makes it almost you know, like it's it's very hard to attempt. Um it's not like Watchmen where no matter what there's going to be a portion of people who just want it, just really want to see Dr. Manhattan on screen and right. they're going to like the movie no matter what, regardless of how it goes. So that yeah. risk is, is ameliorated a little bit. But Creature Tech, you know, Creature Tech is not a well-known book. So right. you're basically taking a big risk on a difficult story. And regardless of how good it is, that, that is just going to be uh, scary to studios, especially nowadays. Right. Yeah. You kind of broke up there, but I think we got most of everything, understood everything that you said there, Rodrigo. Yes, in summary. And then there's there's also the moment where, you know, as I mock, there are people who say, the comic book movie is dead because the Green Hornet did not make $11 billion. Well, this isn't a comic book movie because it's not necessarily comic booky in the way that it's put together, but it would be damn near impossible to do as a movie simply because of the depth of it, the amount of time that you can spend, you know, if you throw in a little one note thing about how beautiful this girl is in a movie, it can come across like what happened to Ramona in Scott Pilgrim, Mm -hmm. where all the fascination that we have from her from six issues, six thick issues of page after page after page of Here's what's going on in Ramona's head, and here she is looking adorable, and here she is over here, and here she is being snotty, and, you know, that kind of gets boiled down to, boy, that sure is a pretty actress playing Ramona. I I, think, you know, just from that level, and that's that's the least of the problems for me. Yeah. I just think animated, you know, I think animated. This would be a great animated movie. I mean, we talked about it earlier, and, like, you want a a movie that will... You know, shatter down the thing about animated movies being for kids. Mm-hmm. You know, you you put you put forth creature tech because you can look at at stuff like heavy metal, which was you know a deliberate attempt to market a movie to adults. But but creature right. tech, I think, is the sort of story that can bridge that gap mm-hmm. where it doesn't have to be one or the other. Well, and I think Iron Giant also was one of those. It, it yeah, was a movie definitely. that was not only loved by kids but adults too, and um, this would fit right in there with that. And which, it's. Paul was probably a consultant for that one too. Probably, well, it doesn't. It's not surprising why this movie has not been made because it, it's very deep and it's very hard and it's very tough to tackle. <laughs> although we have the script and we have the storyboard right here, just translate it. Go, yeah, you know that kind of thing. Uh, bottom line for me, wow, this is a must-read book. Uh, one of the people on the on the Twitter the other day said, "I had said, oh, I just finished reading this and I can't wait to talk about it." And somebody on the Twitter said, oh, I happened upon this in the bookstore just today, flipped through it, but passed. Uh, maybe I'll wait and, and listen to your to your show and then go pick it up. And I said, don't wait. Just go pick it up. This is a book that is that good. This mm-hmm. is a must-read book. 
The art is fantastic. The story is fantastic. And the story can be read on so many different levels, just as Doug sent to us in this email, just as like what we've been talking about in here. There's something for everybody in the book. If there was a book for every man, this is every man's favorite book. Rodrigo? I liked it. (laughs) Matthew? He liked it. (laughs) And so did I. And are you going to recommend it? Is this a must buy? Is this a rent it? Or is, you know, this is a check it out from the library or what? Uh, I would say this is a definitely look into it. You could do much worse. It may not be your cup of tea. And, you know, that's fine for you. Whatever you do, you're wrong. Whatever, you know. (laughs) But for me, I think that it works on a number of levels. And it works in a satisfactory manner. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, you know, sometimes you get to a book and the fun of the book is that you get to the end and you don't get what you want. Mm-hmm. This doesn't do that. You get to the end and you do get some of the things that you want, depending on what you wanted. And, you know, your mileage always varies, but I think it's very good. I would say at the very least, you should read it and don't be off put by the art because I had that moment where I'm like, wow, this art is what? Hey, wait, this art is awesome. Wait, what? 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 And then I, you know, I talked to myself like Barney Stinson for about five minutes and then I moved on. And now we're cha-chaing. Indeed. All right. There you go, everybody. There's a look at uh, Creature Tech from Doug Tenopel or Tenapel, or we apologize for mispronouncing your name. Doug Tenapel has a difficult name. A difficult uh, name has Doug to or maybe to or we do not know. I'm I'm sure uh, we hit it at least once. One, one yeah, because we've had like nine different pronunciations. I'm going to go with Tenapel because it sounds vaguely Native American and cool. All right, everybody. That wraps it up for this issue. Thank you so much for listening and being part of the major spoilers experience and really going through us this journey of very non-traditional comic book reviews or, or trades over the last, what has it been, month and a half, basically since the beginning of the year. 67 uh, years. 67 years. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at Justice League International Volume 1. Justice that takes us, League. Takes us more back into Internet. the uh, traditional capes and tights storytelling. No, it doesn't. Well, we'll find out. If you haven't read it, you might want to go pick it up. Why? Because we know that you love comics, and we do too. And we'll talk with you soon. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at Majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Majorspoilers and on MySpace at MySpace.com slash Majorspoilers. Fat Dick's revision of Superman I could save a few bucks and stand around And read through the covers of the comics on the stand But although every other page would be backwards I suppose I could still read the evens and the odds Well I don't know Guess I haven't thought this all the way through Plus as soon as the comic book store guy knew They kicked my butt out on the corner What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. 
What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler What a major spoiler It's like a man of iron Might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fine Be in the Middle East With a King Santo and soldier What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah Major Spoiler. This has been a Major Spoilers podcast. Copyright 2011. Goodbye. See you on the next show.